we are live with our newest episode of Relational Leadership, where we delve into the captivating world of leadership and provide you with invaluable insights and lessons to become the kind of leader that people truly want to follow. Join us every week as we unravel secrets of effective leadership and empower you with skills to make a lasting impact on your team and organization. I'm Stephanie Clements. And I am Sean Diley, and we have a terrific guest today that, Stephanie, I'm going to throw it back to you to introduce Colonel Retired and former astronaut Terry Burks. So super excited about this, and we appreciate you being here, Terry. So I'm going to um, see if I can boost your ego here a little bit as I, I talk about you, but... Um, Colonel Terry Burks is a distinguished individual with an impressive background. He served as a test fighter pilot in the U.S. Air Force, boasting a wealth of experience. Additionally, he is a NASA veteran, having undertaken two space flights during his remarkable career. He holds degrees from the United States Air Force Academy, Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University and Harvard Business School. He is a renowned thought leader, sought after speaker, and accomplished author. During his seven months in space, his accomplishments included pilot, piloting the space shuttle, commanding the International Space Station, conducting three spacewalks, engaging in scientific experiments while collabor collaborating closely with numerous international partners, including race. Russian Space Agency cosmonauts, and he's been on the Joe Rogan show. <laughs> so, I mean. <laughs> so, so, Terry, before we learn more about you, I've got to ask the question that is probably bugging our audience. At what point are you going to finally do something with your life? <laughs> <laughs> Stop uh, just wasting my days away. Well, most importantly, I've been on the Relational Leadership Podcast. Right. Um, well, yeah. Joe Rogan prepared you for that. It was, uh, you know, it was like the minor leagues. Right, sure. So, <laughs> so uh, you know, before we, for the people just now tuning in, when we were coming on, uh, I was telling Terry that, look, he's so accomplished, but he, he, he didn't come on the show for us to read his bio. Uh, but as impressive as that is, uh, Terry, I'd like to just start with some very basic stuff and give you the floor and let people know that underneath of that amazing resume that Terry Burks is like a regular person that can actually relate <laughs> to people. So maybe just tell us a little bit about, you know, um, you know, where you're from, uh, family, hobbies, favorite food, you know, the kind of stuff that we're not going to find on your Wikipedia page. That's funny because I do a lot of speaking. That's kind of my day job. And um, yeah, I had a chance to fly in space on the space shuttle and on the Soyuz. And people often ask me, well, when, when are normal people going to have a chance to go into space? And I always laugh like, well, clearly normal people haven't been to space, you know, like I grew up in a middle-class uh, family. My mom and dad didn't go to college. I was the first kid to go to college. Um, I grew up as a Baltimore Oriole fan. I, we were on the East Coast in Maryland. So the Orioles were kind of my, you know, my my thing when I was a kid. Um, I was there for the 79 and 83 World Series and just lifelong Orioles fan. So this year is really great to see them back from the from the dregs. They've got all these amazing young players best record in the American League. So I'm definitely a baseball nerd. Um, having been here in Houston for over 20 years now, I've become a Astros transplanted fan. So I used to say I always wanted an Orioles Astros World Series, but 
when the Astros were in the National League. Now they're in the American League. So I'm rooting for an Orioles Astros ALCS, which might happen this year, by the way. That there's def- <laughs> okay. that, that definitely might happen. So um So when I, that happens, um who are you gonna pull for? I'm gonna it's gonna be cognitive dissonance. I don't know what I'm gonna do. I'm, I'm gonna need, <laughs> I'm gonna need a tranquilizer or something because that's gonna be you know, my, my childhood team. And in fact, I flew both an Astros jersey and a Nolan Ryan baseball, which is really cool. And I, I wanted to give it back to him and he was like, ah, oh, you keep it. So I got a chance to keep this baseball <laughs> that I flew for Nolan Ryan. Um, oh, that's so but cool. I, I also flew an Orioles jersey. If you go to Camden Yards in Baltimore, right behind home plate, they have like on the second floor, this trophy case of their world series trophies. They've got literally have the, their World Series trophies and this jersey of mine that says Verts on it is like the in the in the trophy case of the Orioles Stadium. So it was pretty cool. So that's going to be really painful. I'm going to root for a Game Seven walk off if there's an Orioles. <laughs> that's, that's my. That's what I'm going to do. Yeah. Well, Terry, your your humility comes across as so genuine, um, and and I'm going to just accept that at face value that you are a normal person. And that's refreshing for a lot of people to understand that, you know, that at the end of the day, that you are the same carbon-based unit walking around <laughs> as a lot of people, but you obviously did a lot with what you had. And so because this is a show about leadership, maybe talk to us a little bit. You know, you made that transition. You went to NASA where you are surrounded by a lot of extraordinarily high-performing people and not just the ones that wear the spaces. I mean, you're surrounded by oh, some... Yeah some high-speed people that didn't even get off the ground. What, what does leadership look like inside of a large organization that's populated with so many talented and hardworking and driven individuals? I could talk for an hour on that subject. So the first thing for those watching- That's seconds, buddy. <laughs> if they could see this, there's a, picture oh, yeah. took, there's a picture I took of the earth. If you're listening, it's just a really cool, there's the planet earth and the sun there. And so and I did read that you you really enjoyed photography. That was my that, that yeah. was my that was my thing. When you see that, it's really hard to get impressed with celebrity or to think that you're some kind of great person. Like it's an amazing planet. It's a beautiful planet. It's amazing earth. And I'm impressed by people who do good and amazing things, mm-hmm. not so much celebrity and stuff like that. Definitely. So the, my perspective definitely changed. But I always used to joke that when you go to NASA, whatever you think you're good at, there's somebody else that's better. Um, Like I thought I was pretty good at foreign languages. I minored in French at the academy. I did a semester at the French Air Force Academy. And I think that's why I got picked is because I had a foreign language ability and overseas experience. And it's the International Space Station and you have to learn Russian. I'm pretty sure that's why I got selected. And then I get to NASA and like most astronauts are not really great in the languages, but there's a few that are like incredible. Um, if you think you're a good pilot, well, there's like a lot of the other best pilots on earth there. You know what, like I said, if you think you're a pretty good athlete, we, there's Navy SEALs there. (laughs) So whatever you're, whatever you're good at, there's people better. And that, and the lesson that, that I learned, I think leadership, well, there's a million things that leadership is, but one of them is realizing where you are on the spectrum. So if you are a platoon sergeant and you have a bunch of 18 year old basic privates right or Mm -hmm. basic cadets you're not going to give them any 
decision-making ability at all. You're going to tell them to put on their left boot first, and then you put on your right boot and you get out of bed at 6 a.m. and then you do this and then you brush your teeth. You're, they're not ever going to have any decision. And then if you got a colonel or a general, you're going to just say, hey, make this happen and expect them to make it happen. And so you need to know where people are on that spectrum. And at NASA, on the spectrum, so to speak, but on the you know leadership maturity spectrum. And at NASA, there's a lot of people that are pretty high on the spectrum. For example, when I was commander of the station, we had one rookie on there and, and she was the smartest one of all of us, right? So ba I'm there with a very, very highly functioning, experienced team. So every time I had a problem, I would bring my team together and say, all right, guys, we're having a problem with the water recycling system. What should we do? And 100% of the time, somebody had a good idea and I would say, okay, let's let's do this idea. Um, Steve Jobs had a great quote that he doesn't hire uh, smart people to tell them what to do. He hires smart people so they can tell him what should be done. And I think if you have, if your team is in that position, then you need to let them do that. But if you still have the 18 year olds, then you need to give them direction and and also groom them so that eventually they grow up and mature and become the sergeants and the lieutenants and the captains. So you just need to understand where you're at on that spectrum. And at NASA, there, like you said, or in a lot of organizations, there's a lot of pretty talented, capable people. You need to give them the vision. Here's what I need done and let them let them go do it. I, oh. I, I, I want to talk, well, we can talk about it later. I just directed a short film and it was this being a director is the same thing. Okay, I'm, I'm going to, you're going to really pull me off the microphone today, Stephanie. So okay. I, I, will, <laughs> yes, uh, I, I have, have questions. I did have ahead. one follow-up on something you just said. So you know, we're broadcasting from Louisville, Kentucky, and um, you may have heard that basketball is kind of a big deal in the state. <laughs> and uh, Coach John Calipari at the University of Kentucky in Lexington uh, has been known for going after some high-level recruits his entire tenure. And the trick is always, okay, how do I get these 18-year-old five-star McDonald All-Americans under the same roof to share the ball? Right. Without outing anybody or you know putting too much dirty laundry out there i'm sure there had to have been times whether it was with a small team you know in space or the larger team on the ground where you've got these extraordinary people that are just entrenched in their position that are maybe going to butt heads um you know what does that look like in a place like nasa and and how does a leader help massage that through yeah I mean, going back to the baseball analogy, look at the Mets and the Yankees and the Padres, you know, they're spending probably a billion dollars on their, on their teams and none of them are going to make the playoffs. And the Orioles have about the lowest one second or third lowest payroll in all of baseball and the best record in the American league. And so having a team function well is a lot better than having superstars. Um, and the one thing that I would always advice, I would give younger astronauts is that it's good to be a little lazy. If you have to have everything go your way, if you are so type A that you wanna micromanage everything and this is the best way to do that and this is the best way to do that and everything has to be your perfect and everything has to go your way. If you're in a large bureaucracy like NASA and NASA is a giant bureaucracy and not only that, we work with Russia and Europe and Canada and Japan. So we work with all these other massive bureaucracies, right? Yeah. So it's really hard to turn the ship the battleship one degree. And so if you're the kind of guy that just has to have everything perfect, you're going to be miserable. You're going to make everybody around you miserable. And we've seen this with commanders on the station that just wanted everything perfect. And the other thing is at NASA, you go up to the station for six months and you come back, 
once you leave, it's going to be somebody else doing it. And then once they leave, it'll be somebody else doing it. So you have to have a perspective that perfect can be the enemy of good enough, I think. Okay. And, um, one of the last things I did it, before I left NASA a few years ago was help them uh, select the, the next astronaut class. I think it was 2017. Maybe it was the class of 2017. And uh, I went through thousands of applications. And the ones that I was really leery about were the people who always got straight A's. They were always number one. They were always distinguished graduates at everything, you know, the people who had been perfect at everything they've ever done. And there's a few of those guys in the astronaut office. Um, they're honestly, they're often just difficult to work with because everything's perfect and they want everything perfect. And so you have to have, I think you have, if you failed and handled that well, that's way more valuable than always being number one they haven't yeah they haven't experienced that failure yet and may not do well and they and they can make life miserable for other people right right. when when everything has to be perfect sure so um just curious on um i know i've had some people asking too you know you're up there and our relations with russia haven't always been um hand in hand, super friendly, best friends, but, you know, you're on this space station and the shuttle, you know, with, with other people that, you know, don't always want our best interest. How does that, how does that play out when you're up there? Well, that was the defining issue of my time, so to speak. I was there, my, I was there in 2014 and 2015 when Russia first invaded Ukraine really when this war started, um, they annexed Crimea, we put sanctions on them, and it was right in the middle of all that. They shot down the the Malaysian airline um, from Holland. So what we would do is in a training event or a Friday night on the space station, we would say, look, politics is politics. We need to focus on our mission, like not dying. We're, we're in outer space. <laughs> we're doing spacewalks. We're launching <laughs> on rockets. So let's not die and we'll worry about Earth when we get back to Earth. And so I made it a point when I was commander, there's the Russian segment of the station and there's the American segment. And the American segment is really US, Canada, Japan, you're, it's everybody else. There's Russia and there's everybody else. So it's very easy to just let them stay on their side and we'll stay on our side and not work together. So I made it a point whenever I could at nighttime, we were doing our work, I would put all my dinner in a Ziploc bag and float down to the Russian segment and have dinner with those guys just to keep us as one crew and try and be on the same team, kind of like pilots and maintenance working together in a squadron or whatever. Um, it's very easy for the pilots to do their thing and the maintenance guys to do their thing and they never talk and that's not healthy. So I really made it a point to do that. And just on an aside, personally, it's been incredibly painful and angering to see how, how Russia's handled the war in Ukraine um, and how cosmonauts have handled it. Of three of the cosmonauts that I flew in space with are in the Duma, supporting Putin, supporting the war. Um, last year, this year, cosmonauts get back from space and they're promoting the war. So that's been really, really frustrating because we spent a couple decades building these relationships. I love my time in Russia. It was, it was great. I learned, I love the language, I love the food. I really enjoyed it a lot. And it's, so that's been a pretty frustrating thing. But when you're in the middle of it, you have to put that aside and just focus on your job. Yeah. All right. So you talked about NASA being understandably a large bureaucracy. And you know, from Mercury to Gemini to Apollo, there was a 
a pretty aspirational vision that was cast early, right? And part of that was driven by the competition we were in with the Soviets. But mm -hmm. I, you'll know the story better than I, but there was a dignitary once walking through a NASA facility and he asked a custodian, what do you do? And the custodian said, I'm going to put somebody on the moon. Like the idea being that everybody had a piece of that big vision. So when you're in a large organization uh, in a leadership capacity, how important is it to be able to articulate a vision that not just the people at the top can understand, but that actually has a way of kind of trickling down so that everybody at some level in their own way feels like they're part of that journey? Mm -hmm. I This is a huge issue it's incredibly important for every organization at every level um and it's one of the subjects i talk about you know when i when i do speak corporate speaking and i think it's the biggest success that nasa's ever had um was 1961 president kennedy gave the vision we're going to land a man on the moon by the end of the decade and the, my favorite part of this vision was and return him safely to the earth right <laughs> that was my that was <laughs> yeah the, that, probably that was the best part yeah we well, yeah, you know, yeah, hard to get volunteers when you don't share that part. <laughs> well, you know, Elon wants to. Yeah, that's Elon wants a one-way ticket to Mars and all these people. And you know, when you watch, you just watch the Starship launch and SpaceX is made. They've done incredible things. They really have, but they they just exploded this massive eleven million pound rocket, and all the engineers were cheering. And I'm like. I don't know if I want to fly on a rocket when all the engineers cheer when it blows up. But anyway, that's a different, uh, <laughs> different subject. Um, the vision was very clear. Go to the moon by 1969. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's great. But unless you have a strategy to get there, that, you know, it's just words. And by the way, words are cheap. A lot of organizations have words. Oh, yeah. People roll their eyes. Yeah. They, the BS flag is, goes up. People know if it's real or not, right? So yeah. this was yeah. real. What Kennedy said was real. So you, we just didn't do Apollo and go to the moon. We, we came up with a strategy. How are we going to get there? We had Mercury and then Gemini and then Apollo. And the Mercury program was, um, can people fly in space? Like, will this work at all? And then Gemini was, let's develop and test Everybody always wants to leave out. That was a test pilot. Everybody wants to leave out the testing component. It's the first thing program managers want to cut. Um, but test out at like two person missions and two long duration missions, two week, instead of just one day, it was a two week mission and rendezvous in space and spacewalking and all these different technologies that we would need for Apollo. Gemini was that middle testing. The, Gemini was the middle child, right? And then Apollo was finally yeah. go to the moon. And then once you have your strategy, then you work out your tactics. How are you going to do Mercury? Will it be on a Redstone or an Atlas rocket? What technologies do we need to test during Gemini? Whatever. You work out the details from there. But you need to start with the vision and then work backwards. And this is one of the big subjects I teach at business school and in, in speaking and in uh, executive coaching is like, let's work out what what's the vision. And then you work backwards from that. Too often we start with, you know, what with what do you have, what are we doing? And then you yeah. kind of wander towards a vision, not to get too political, but that's kind of what we're doing in Ukraine is like, we'll hem and haw and wring our hands for six months. Can we give them M1 tanks? Okay, we'll give them M1 tanks. Yeah. And then 
for six more months. Should we give them F-16s or not? All right, finally, we'll, we'll give in and we'll give them F-16s. Sure, right, right. We should say the vision is we want to win the war and then what strategy do you First need to get there? Yeah. yeah, so it's we need you need to work backwards. Okay. Which is a lot of, I mean, even in sales, we say, you know, see the end vision and figure out backwards. That's the way to do it. Pitch, it's like pitching backwards. Throw them the throw them the curveball and a two and zero count. Right, anyway. <laughs> so you know we had a chance to talk before we got started, and you know, and you mentioned that one of the topics that you um, speak on is why organizations fail. Mm. Where did you see things like that happening in your experience? Yeah, that's a good point. So one of the um, this course I do guest lecture at, at Harvard Business School, which is great how they do, we were talking earlier how they do the case study. I think case study is a great way to learn in general and especially for business, it's perfect. But uh, one of the cases is about Challenger and the space shuttle Challenger accident back in 1986, where um, this solid rocket motor strapped on the side blew up. I've got a shuttle model right behind me, the big white rocket, if you can see that. And uh, it caused it to blow up, it killed the crew. And then they learned all these lessons. One of the lessons was, you know, if your engineers are telling you, hey, this is really dangerous, you should at least listen to them. It doesn't mean you have to shut the program down, but you may need to shut the program down. What NASA needed to do in 1985 was stop flying and fix the solid rocket motors. Um, they didn't do that. They waited until it killed the crew, and then they had to shut down for a few years to fix the problem. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the folks that learned that lesson were, you know, the junior engineers. They grew up to be the bosses and the senior managers. And then in 2003, I was actually an astronaut. I was a rookie at the time, a brand yeah. new guy, young guy in my 30s. And uh, my, I was assigned as a family escort. Rick Husband, the commander of Columbia, asked me to help his families out. So there was a, a handful of us. Every mission, there's always an official family escort. And they're just there to help the families with during launch and landing and just be the the translator between NASA and the families. And so mm -hmm. I was there on the runway waiting for Columbia to come back and at there was an accident, it killed the crew. And what they learned was there was this problem with foam falling off the tank and on it had been hitting the bottom of the shuttle for 20 years. And it was never a problem. It caused damage, but it never killed the crew. So the lesson NASA had learned was foam's not a problem. Well, on Columbia, it was a bigger piece of foam and it hit a really sensitive piece of part of the wing that had never been hit before. And it hit at the perfect angle and airspeed, just all the stars aligned. And it put a hole in the wing. And they said, well, we don't, we're not going to take a picture. We don't even, there's nothing we could do anyway. So why do we need to bother to see if there's any damage on the wing? So the bosses who had been junior engineers during Challenger had now decided that, well, this isn't a problem. And anyway, it ended up killing the crew. A lot of the lessons from the Columbia accident were exactly what we had learned on Challenger. So the lesson yeah. or the the idea for businesses is don't be arrogant <laughs> you may it's i as a fighter pilot i always wanted to learn from other people's mistakes because yeah. if you make a mistake in a jet that can be really bad so i my goal is always learn from other people's mistakes and if you learn a lesson have you unlearned them like do you still remember them we were talking about the global financial crisis have we really learned those lessons or are there still is bank of america and chase and jp morgan too big to fail they probably are. <laughs> so if they make some bad bets, all of us as taxpayers are going to have to bail them out again. So that idea of if you learn something, have you un unlearned it or make sure you, you're 
um, yeah. not forgetting. So, Terry, I heard a saying once that a a cat won't step on a hot stove twice, but that mm. same cat may never step on a cold stove either, right? Mm. So, I'm trying to like visualize and so you know. Colonel Terry Burtz is a family escort waiting for Columbia to re-enter the atmosphere and, and land. And then there's that tragedy. So intellectually, I completely understand the logic of learning from those lessons and, right. and putting you know, processes and protocols in place. But emotionally, how does an organization bounce back from that because I could see where some people emotionally could become like too risk averse like uh oh now I, I see danger More behind paralyzed. every corner right so how like as a leader do you balance prudent thoughtful safe mitigation versus becoming and I, I wouldn't say chicken little I and mean, I'm not trying to minimize yeah. how it felt but I think you understand where I'm yeah. going because we don't have you know we can't just say okay we're no more space we're done Right. So how do you balance that, Terry? That's a huge issue. So we used to say in the Air Force, you would do there'd be an accident. Unfortunately, as a fighter pilot, I you know, I know too many widows. And yeah. uh we would say, Well, the only way to be safe is to just don't fly. If you don't fly, you won't have any accidents. And that's yeah. true. Same thing with space. And as part of the challenger case that we teach, you know, there's a giant process that NASA has of how to handle ab abnormalities and problems. Um Challenger had 706 open, <laughs> open items on the maintenance forms. And that's a lot. So if you wait until everything is 100% safe, you're never going to fly. So you do have to balance that. I think you need to make sure that your leadership and the people that are making the decision, the men and the women, um, are have their eyes open. And if somebody brings them a problem, they're going to listen to it and analyze it. And uh, one, one of the ways that a very simple, basic risk management technique that NASA used was, um, if you think of a simple graph where you've got the likelihood of something happening and the severity of something right. happening. Yeah. So if it's probably going to happen and it kills you, that would be, you would get a high score for that. The number, it would yeah. be red and you wouldn't fly. If it's very unlikely that something will happen and it doesn't matter, you're fine. You're, you can, just ignore it. And that helps you prioritize your resources because there's always limited time and money and people. And it also helps you give you a no-go, you know, go, no-go risk management. It's a basic risk management technique. Sure. But okay. you need to, you need to have something on those lines that you're keeping your mind open. The most important thing is don't get arrogant. And if you think you're getting arrogant and I'll, and I'll transition super quick because I know I'm talking a lot here, but the well, but good because we yeah we want, well, that was the whole point yeah yeah we want you yeah. please keep yeah. going continue <laughs> yeah so um uh well the air force would do we had this operational risk management thing where it was it was kind of the same thing before a flight you would have to say you know do you have this problem or that problem and if if the those numbers of problems added up to a certain amount you wouldn't fly that yeah. day and it's just a methodical way to go through um, the go no go decision that we all have to make in all uh, all these types of situations. Okay. So the other thing, you know, and I've watched some movies and whatever, you know, Interstellar and things like that, you know. Great. But as we talk about relational leadership, but you know, our 
personal relationships also affect our ability to lead at times. And how how do the people going and they're going can be gone so long? And that's in military or whether you're going to space or whatever. How do you manage the strain that it puts on family and and still focus on on leading the people that you have? Yeah. Dealing with family is is a important issue because in we this is another thing I used to always say the Air Force doesn't love you <laughs> or NASA certainly does not love you and there's going to come a day when you're gone and you're not indispensable if you're yeah. the CEO of the of Tesla or whatever you're not indispensable if once you leave there'll be ten other people raising their hands to take your job so you do have to balance that and if you're leading a large organization, that's a full-time job. Like it takes time to do that. You just have to figure out, you know, how you're going to balance that. I think keep your family in the loop. Like we're going to take vacation here and I'm going to leave my phone at home or whatever. Mm -hmm. And let them know that there's times where you're going to prioritize them. And then there's other times where you have to prioritize something else. Um, And then, you know, maybe try and get your family to help benefit from it. You know, like I, was able to give my kids some pretty cool experiences. They got to go do things that they wouldn't have gotten to do had I not, you know, been an astronaut. But I was also gone in space for seven months. A career day. <laughs> yeah, you know, I was with the other kids. Yeah, not with my own kids. Oh yeah, no, I, <laughs> no, I get it. You're just, yeah. you're just, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> but, but the other kids are like, oh wow, yeah. They, so yeah. I, there, I've told this story a bunch, but when LeBron. Finally, I think he went to the Heat 10 years ago and won his first championship. And yeah. I'm a big sports guy. I was coaching basketball for my kid. I coached all of the sports for my kids. And we were sitting on the couch watching. And my little my daughter, who was probably eight or 10 or something at the time, <laughs> we're watching LeBron on TV. And she looks at me and she says, Dad, why can't you be more like LeBron James? <laughs> and I'm like, well, uh, He's from Ohio and I'm from Maryland. So there's one difference. Um, <laughs> yeah. Might be a little height difference. Uh, so. Yeah. So in my previous life, just as a knuckle dragon Air Force pilot, you know, that right. wore, you know, those Nomex pajamas every day for a uniform. Exactly. When the kids now that they're older look back and, you know, that's what I did full time for so many years. Sure. So there's a lot of family photos where I'm like going straight to a t-ball game or straight to a volleyball game and yeah. I'm still in a flight suit. And only now that they're older, they look back like, I guess it was kind of cool that my dad was an Air Force pilot. But at the time, I'm just the guy that said, you got to eat vegetables and go to bed at eight. I was just another ogre. Right. Right. I was nothing special. (laughs) Or that you were putting that on and meant you weren't going to be able to be available. Well, that's true. And two, which is a a separate thing. I mean, as, as the child of one, you know, with my dad being a pilot, you know, I understand from that side that that suit didn't mean anything special on my terms no yeah. so oh, no. <laughs> it was, but, but it was funny I, I had lunch it's been a couple of years I, I Hollywood like not Hollywood but film and tv is very interesting and I'm working on a few projects and I had lunch with an a-lister dir- a director that you all everybody knows on this podcast and uh he was like Terry this is so funny as I I told my he had a teenager I told my teenager I was going to have lunch with you and he was so excited and he doesn't care about this billion dollar movie I'm working on. He could care less about that, but he was so excited that you were getting to meet an astronaut. So I have a lot of friends in major league baseball that they don't care about baseball, but they, anyway, 
Every, yeah. The grass is always greener, no matter what you do in life. Well, but because yeah. you brought up Hollywood and Stephanie already mentioned Interstellar, um, boy, if I had a nickel for every time as a military pilot, friends and family would say, hey, man, is Top Gun real? <laughs> as an astronaut, as a card-carrying astronaut, what is your favorite space movie? And it could be the same one. Which space movie, whether it was Right Stuff, Apollo 13, from an astronaut's perspective, you felt like came closest to capturing yeah. what it's like and again we, it's a movie but which yeah, one yeah, yeah. really stands out to you so i i there's different types of movies so i have a mount rushmore of movies um interstellar is probably my favorite because it's a father-daughter story it's not a space story and and the physics of it are interesting like time yeah. travel is real i actually because of relativity because of einstein i aged seven milliseconds less than you guys did while i was in space so i'm the NASA, some NASA physicist told me I'm seven milliseconds younger. Um, <laughs> Apollo 13. It shows, too. Yeah, 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 yeah. You can see my lap. My right, right. right. Yeah. <laughs> um, Apollo 13 is just incredible because it's a real story. And they actually filmed real astronauts. It's not CG. I, I don't like CG. I don't like animated. I like real humans. Um, uh, the right stuff is what told me how to be an astronaut when I was 13 a family friend said hey you need to read this book called right stuff I didn't see the movie I just read the book hmm. um and I'm actually Houston the Museum of Fine Arts they have a movies that Houstonians like like last year I went to my buddy introduced dazed and confused so um this December I'm going to introduce the right stuff and we're going to have like a Houston movie night talking about the right stuff that movie is just incredible. It's over three hours long. It's a, and it's aged really well. It's forty years old. Very now. well. Yes. And it's about the you know Chuck Yeager and the early Mercury astronauts. It's a, it's, the right stuff is something that we lack today. The 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 in our in our culture and the goal of culture today is to make sure nobody gets offended, and the goal of the those guys was to do something that was incredible. And there's we that the concept of the right stuff and how those guys were brave and did some amazing things. That's something that we need to recapture, I think. Um, so I love the right stuff. Here's another movie is Apollo 11. It's a documentary. I think it was a CNN documentary on the 50th anniversary. It is spectacular. Uh, Todd Douglas Miller was a director. I did an event with him. Um, I actually had a chance to direct a documentary that was not a big deal like his movie. Apollo 11 is amazing. That is a great film. Watch it on the big screen if you can, on an IMAX screen. If you can't, you know, turn the volume up at home. It's a great documentary. Mm -hmm. um, one of the, when I was in space, I had a chance to help make a movie called A Beautiful Planet. <clears throat> it's an IMAX film. Tony Myers was our director. Tony made all the space IMAX movies going back to before Columbia launched. She was an amazing director. She, I dedicated my film to her as my mentor to be a director. Unfortunately, she passed away from cancer. But so A Beautiful Planet was her last one. If you ever saw The Dream is Live or um, Space Station 3D, she she was involved in all the IMAX movies. So you asked, the, what's the best one to experience space? A Beautiful Planet is the best way to experience a space mission without going into space. It's you have okay. to if watch it on an IMAX film on a screen if you can. It's a and really... you said you have your own new movie, right? Or maybe not yeah. super new. Tell us yeah. the name of that one. Well, it's, I'll tell you once it gets picked up. 
Um, so I've, oh, I've okay. worked on, yeah, okay. I've worked, I just worked on a proof of concept. Well, so I directed a documentary called One More Orbit. It was uh, about this, we did an around the world um, world record in a, in a jet, took off and landed from the Kennedy Space Center, flew over the North and South Pole. It was amazing. It was, it was really a cool uh, thing. I brought one of my Russian cosmonaut friends for my mission. It was a cool project. Um, the, ironically, the guy that led it and put it together was also on the Titan sub a couple months ago in, in the yeah. Titanic. So, but that was for me, I'd been a pilot my whole life. That was my first chance to direct. Um, and it was, I kind of fell in love with directing. I really enjoyed it. So, and it's a lot of the same leadership skills. It's, you have a team, you have your director of photography and you have your art director and your, and your editors and your actors. And you, it's, it's putting a diverse team together. Um, it's like being a wing commander and you have all these different unrelated skills that you got to let them do their job, yeah. give them a vision and then let them do their thing. And if they need guidance, give them guidance. And um, anyway, that was a lot of fun. No, that sounds great. Well, we really appreciate you being here. Um, and I know you're going to like tell everybody about this because it's only, it pales in comparison to Joe Rogan. But <laughs> we're excited that you joined us and um, all the insights that you gave today. Yeah, uh, Terry, and certainly um, I know your dance card probably stays pretty full, but as NASA um, continues to move forward and we've got some pretty exciting missions in the queue, over the next few years. Uh, I know that Stephanie, I can speak for her, we would be really excited to hear your thoughts on how the return to the moon, you know, unfolds yeah. and yeah. what else, you know, possibly even beyond, but whether or not that comes to fruition for us, uh, we really appreciate your time. Uh, you're just, just an exceptionally uh, gifted, a patriotic American who's done some really neat things. And so we really appreciate you spending some time with us today. Thanks for having me on, this was fun. I could talk for hours about these things, so. It was yeah, we could we could go for hours. Um, so I know that you also do speaking. Where would somebody go um, if they wanted you to speak at their organization? Or um, I've got Twitter and Instagram and all that. Probably the easiest thing. I've got a website, terryverch.com. Okay. Uh, sure www.terryverch.com, and 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 there's a I think there's an email address on there or contact me or something. They can get in touch with me that way, but. Um, nope. for speaking or the executive coaching that I'm doing. All right. Well, awesome. Well, thank you again. And um, we appreciate you all for joining us. Obviously, you can find us on all of the social media channels as well as Audible and uh, Apple and Spotify for Under Relational Leadership and appreciate anything you'll do there sharing and following and um, look forward to bringing you better, co more content, not, be not better, just more content um, coming up soon. All right. Take Thanks. Bye-bye. See you guys.